Hello and welcome to From Paper to Podium, brought to you by PhD Nutrition and Science in Sport. The Science in Sport group is the world's leading premium performance nutrition company, home to the brands bringing this podcast to you. I'm Charlie Webster and I'm joined by my co-host, Professor James Morton. In each episode, James and I delve into a subject within sports and nutrition with an athlete and an expert so that we can share their secrets to success. In this episode, we're excited to be speaking to the ultimate one-club player, former Liverpool footballer and pundit Jamie Carragher. We chat to Jamie about the evolution of sports science in football, pre-season training and, of course, his legendary career. Jamie, we're really pleased to have you on. Thanks for coming on our podcast. Um, But first things first, before we talk about anything else, will Liverpool bounce back next season? They will be a lot better in terms of bounce back, which obviously means win the league. Uh, I think it just depends how strong they go in the transfer market, to be honest. I think Man City are going to take some catching. I think they're going to go again in the transfer market, whether that's Jack Grealish and Harry Kane or or one of them. In, uh, Liverpool have already bought a centre-back, but I just think they'll need another attacking player and another midfield player, and then I will be confident Liverpool will be you know, back in the race big time. We've got the predictions out of the way. So, Jamie, yourself, you retired in 2013 after over 700 appearances, Champions League winner, so much more, and regarded as one of Liverpool's greatest ever players. When you first entered Liverpool's academy as a youngster, would you ever have imagined your career would be where it is now? No, no, of course not, because uh, I was a centre-forward, number one, when I joined the club. So it was, uh, it was a big turnaround when I got into the first team. So, But no, I mean, as, as a youngster, I, was just, I, I can picture it now. As soon as anyone asked me about the, the first time going to Liverpool, I always picture the first time I was told I was going to Liverpool. And it was a, it was a Friday night and I was at a training session at a local school for uh, me, me county team, or my town team, I should say, Bootle Boys. And I can still picture it now in the dressing room afterwards. Four of us got asked to uh, to go to Liverpool the following week. And uh, at that stage, you were still training in, in, a, in a local gym. With Liverpool, it wasn't a case of going to Melwood straight away, but it was uh, the Vernon Sangster, which was a couple of hundred yards from, from Anfield. It's been knocked down now, in, just in uh, in Stanley Park. And uh, and it all started from there. Yeah, so it's something you never forget. And, uh, you know, whenever anyone mentions it, like you have done yourself there, it uh, takes me right back to it. When I mentioned it then, what was it like for you? What feelings came up? You know, what can you smell now? What can you see when we're talking about it? It's the actual dressing room in the school because it wasn't just me. There was four of us. And also you've got to remember, there's a lot of other players in this dressing room. There's probably about 14 or 15 lads. So it's a real excitement. Maybe others are a little bit disappointed they haven't been chosen. But also, don't forget, I am the biggest Everton fan you've ever seen as a nine-year-old kid. And this is, I'm getting told I'm going to Liverpool. So I'm running out telling me dad, and it's like, oh, you know, we, we, go, to, we go to Goodison every other week to watch, uh, you know, the big rivals. But Liverpool at that stage were the, were the best team in the country. Even as an Everton fan, I knew that. And it was the best place for me to go. If there's one skill that you've, that you learned through your career, looking back, what do you think it was that, characterised you and your success? I, I would say my mentality and learning to deal with the pressures of, of being a footballer and not just being a footballer, being a, a local player playing for Liverpool, which is, is not easy uh, at times. Kind of like thrust in the public eye. Yeah, you're, you're there, but you, you know your family get intertwined with the club. You know, you've got friends you went to school with, they were Liverpool fans, you've got them people you know who were Everton fans and that rivalry within the city. And uh, when I say it's tough, listen, you know, I, I wouldn't want it any other way, but at times you can feel engulfed by it. 
And also, you've almost got to create a, I felt almost a bubble and almost, you know, keep yourself, don't get too involved in what was going on the outside of that, really. And it was just about, you know, Melwood, Anfield, playing for Liverpool. Obviously, you've got your family and friends and you're socialising now and again. But don't, I mean, you've got to understand Liverpool. James will know. Football is the biggest thing in this city by a country mile. It's all everyone speaks about every single day. So you can't get caught up in it. You've always got to try and distance yourself from that. And that is tough to do mentally. As I said, it's it's probably different for foreign players or even Michael Owen, who lived in Chester. He could almost get away from it uh, every day. It was difficult maybe for me and Stevie, but I think dealing with that, you know, certainly wasn't easy. And that was to stay at Liverpool as long as I did and Stevie did. I think we we almost had to create a mechanism mentally to you know to deal with that situation. I've actually heard that a lot from football players, but also leaders about it's just a really valuable piece of advice. I think you've just said is like you create that bubble and you know who when they comment, you know who to listen to and trust, and who you know the rest of the comments then they don't know you as a person. Um, James, I wondered if you wanted to come in because you worked with Jamie for several years what was it you saw about Jamie because Jamie you said mentality straight away and James that's something we talked about yeah for sure I mean we spoke a lot Charlie on this podcast about mentality and I, I think it is the difference between someone who's good and someone who's great um, the first time I met Jamie was back in 2010 I don't know if you remember it was after the World Cup actually and we we just got a, an Australian sports scientist an Australian doctor so we came in one day for training and I think it was Jamie, Stevie, Joe Cole, some of the England lads were doing their own training sessions. So there was only five or six of them and I was watching training. But the first thing I noticed was the attitude and the desire in training. And and Jamie came over straight away, welcomed me to the club along with Stevie, said, look, if you need anything, just let us know. But what I was really impressed with was sometimes when there's only four or five, six people training, quite often a lot of players don't really put it in. But by sure, Jamie was putting it in. I mean, he he was the hardest trainer there. And and to me, I mean, looking back, I can remember that like yesterday. It was it was an advert for a good, honest professional. And I think a lot of athletes across all sport would do well to to watch those good, honest professional footballers train. I think footballers sometimes get a bad reputation, Charlie, but the likes of Jamie and Stevie, they were unbelievable trainers. But do you not feel it's changed so much though? I mean, if we look at how hard England are working and those youngsters that have come through. Jamie, how much has that changed, do you think, over the years? How much have academies changed? Yeah, I think the academy system, I think it gets a bit of a, a, a rough uh, press or, you know, the, the opinion from the guy on the street is, oh, oh, these academies and they should be playing uh, Sunday league football or amateur football. I'm, I'm my, my son's gone through the academy system, so I actually wish I'd have gone through the academy system because... I mean, I'd be. I used to go to Liverpool once a week and train for an hour. That was it. Whereas my son started at Liverpool, obviously at Wigan now, and he was going to Liverpool three or four times a week. And we can talk about playing on the street. Don't get me wrong. I think you learn a lot playing on the street with older players, and you watch good players, and it, there's a lot of a mix of, of ages and abilities. But when you're training with the best players in the city three or four times a week, that can't help but improve you. And, and I sometimes look back and wish I'd have done that. Now I was lucky. At 14, I went to the national school at Lillishaw. So for, for, for the next two years, from 14 to 16, I was training every day with the best players in England. So that was, you know, developing me. 
as a player. So I think what we're seeing now is the fruition of the academies in this England team and the success of the junior national teams that we've had. Maybe the the start of St George's Park, if you like, of, of that togetherness and almost feeling like Team England as opposed to just a, a national team that is a group of players put together and they don't have no sort of bond or cohesion. And I think we're actually seeing that a lot under Gareth Southgate. And I think the fact he's been in the system as well as an under-21 coach makes a massive difference to the results that we're seeing right now. I think academies have changed more rapidly than the top level of the game, actually, more than what the first team levels have changed. I mean, I, I think back to 2010 when I first started working at Liverpool and I was working in both the first team and the academy. So essentially, I was trying to provide a service to over 100 players, which is virtually impossible. Now you have academy teams that have their own sports science staff for every age group. They've got their own fitness coach, their own nutritionist. They've got psychologists. And I think Jamie's right. You see that with the players coming through now, they seem to be a lot more rounded, even the way they speak and they hold themselves in the media. They're very impressive athletes, I think, coming through. And you see that with the England guys now, the way they speak after the games and, and the maturity of them for such such young players. Some of them are still are. Jamie, you just mentioned your James then at Wigan. Is he somebody that can take advice off you? I mean, you're Jamie Carragher, but you're also his dad. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, it's, it's it's an interesting dynamic. It certainly is. I don't get too involved with uh, coaches or managers, you know, the football side. I'd, I'd leave that to them. That's their job. Uh, I'd, I've never, ever, whether James was at Liverpool or Wigan, questioned a coach or an academy uh, director on um, what they were doing with my son you know they, my son's in their hands basically they, they're the coaches they pass on information but of course I watch a lot of his games and we'll, we'll chat about football when we get in and we'll go through certain things and he plays the same position as me as well so he's a centre back so it's a, I'd like to think I can add more than maybe the normal dad uh, to James and hopefully that'll that'll help him in the future but Wherever he goes, whatever the club he ends up at, you know, now in the future, or if he has a career in the game, you know, the people in charge, whether it's his managers or his coaches, they are in charge of him as a footballer. So you're not a pushy parent then. So what? <laughs> no. what, what, um, he, what? He may say something different. <laughs> yeah. What is the biggest piece of advice you'd give him then going into the game? I think certainly at the academy level. I think there's a lot of parents who get involved who actually hinder the, the kids or the children and it's a little bit unhealthy for them, uh, really. And what, what I would say is, as well is that at times maybe academies or professional clubs can can talk to players and, and they've got these plans for them, where they're going to go and, and what they're going to do in the future. And they're looking at two, three, four years ahead. I mean, football for me is always about the next game. It's always about the next game. Now, you need to have a vision. You need to have a some sort of idea about where you want to go and how you want to get there to get that. But you can, nothing can ever be on a plate for you. And no matter how many, how many times people tell you, you will be where you will be in the future. If you don't play well in the next two games, you'll, you'll be out the team and someone else will be in the team. So for me, it's all about the, the here and now. And for me, I think if you train the way you play, I think you've got a great opportunity to do well in the game. I'm not a big believer in people thinking that they can switch it on game day I mean there's probably cases that James knows of as well players who are not great trainers and then you know they, they, they come alive on a match day okay fair enough maybe they've got that much ability I could never have done that I, I wasn't I didn't have that ability to, to switch it on 
and off like a switch. So for me to have that mentality day in, day out is a, is a great barometer then, I think, of where you will be at the weekend. Yeah, no, I'd agree with that. I used to love watching the lads train. I mean, Jamie, you think back to the likes of Louis Suarez watching him train. He was he trained exactly how he played at the weekend, didn't he? And it's no surprise that he carried that form into the weekend. Yeah, he was he was fantastic. I used to love training against him. Because <laughs> I'm coming up against, you know, the best striker in the league, so that keeps you ready and I'm fired up for the weekend as well who you're going to come up against. And I think that was a real lesson to a lot of younger players as well at Liverpool, the way Louis Suarez trained. I mean, you mentioned me and Stevie before, but Lewis didn't like even having days off. I think as players, we all like having the odd day off now and again, uh, recharge the batteries. But he was the type who still wanted to be in training. And what came in, as James will know, what came into the fore when Lewis joined the club was the day after the game was always recovery. But then it became a two-day recovery. You know, the sports science had looked into it deeper. And it was actually the second day after the game was when you were, you know, you'd, you'd feel things a lot more and you needed to be looked after a lot more. And, Louis just refused to not train on that second day or do a warm down or massage. He would know I'm doing a proper training session. It's what I've always done throughout my career. So he'd go and train with the, the under-23s or the reserves. You know, it wasn't a case of, you know, training with the rest of the first team. And that just showed his, his appetite for the game. Yeah. <laughs> I can't believe that. <laughs> he, he never missed a day. He was never injured either. He was always 100% availability all of the time. Is he like an anomaly, do you think, though? Look, to be honest, I think a lot of sports science gets a bad name because quite often we try and protect players and, and prevent them from getting injured. Um, but rather what we should be doing is trying to make players more robust. Now, the likes of Louis, being from South America, those guys are robust and resilient because they're playing a lot when they're kids and they've developed that, that robustness over the years and it carries through into the first team. Going back to one of your earlier points, Jamie, about playing in the street and that, and that's—I mean, a lot of it is that's where you develop that toughness and robustness. And Louis had that in bundles, didn't he? Jamie, how much has sports science changed over your career? I can imagine it's dramatically. Well, the first—the first day I joined Liverpool full time, so when I left school and I was going to Melwood every day, so that would have been possibly July the first in nineteen ninety-four. That was the first day Liverpool ever had a full-time physio. So, you know, that, that shows what, what it was basically like. So there was one physio, there was no doctor at the club. We used to have a doctor come maybe once or twice a week at lunchtime to see, you know, some of the players, uh, Mark Waller. He then became the full-time doctor. He's now at Rangers with uh, Stevie Gerrard. But that showed there was, no, there was nothing else. There was no sports science. There was no masseur there, nothing like that. And I think when Gerard Houllier came in, that was when the big turnaround came in terms of, you know, looking at the game differently, having masses, but it certainly was not on any of the scale that we see today, but it was almost gently moving forward. Uh, I think Prozone was a big part of it then, in terms of how far you'd run in a game. That was almost felt like the first uh, technological way of, you know, tracking players. I think it's probably, you know, moved on from there as well now. But we were slowly moving forward, and I think we felt as a club, we'd fell behind the times, and that's, you know, why we brought Gerard Hewley in, you know, the first foreign manager. That was really interesting you mentioned him because culture is something that's spoken about so much in sport. And when we had the likes of Arsene Wenger come into Premier League and Gerard Hewley, it was almost like they were the ones that brought in the changes around, that's what everybody spoke around, around nutrition, around that the way players would change. How much did Hewley change the culture because you went back to winning ways then, didn't you? What did he go in and change? Was it culture? 
Yes, it was. I mean, I think the training standards had dropped. I said before about training the way you play. I mean, that was always be that was always the way I was. But I think it had become a slackness at Liverpool in the way that certain players trained. I think Gerard Houllier stamped that out straight away. Training became a lot more serious, almost game-like. And then it was how you looked after yourself off the pitch. And, and Gerard Houllier couldn't believe the way certainly British players looked after themselves in terms of, in terms of alcohol intake. And I, and I was included and I was a young lad. I was 19, 20, like going out with my mates. And uh, he couldn't get his head around it. And the plays he couldn't change or turn around were maybe too old to really influence. He just got rid of them. And, you know, I think of maybe Jason McAteer early on, Phil Babb, Paul Ince. I think Robbie eventually went because it, there was never, I would never say there was a great relationship between him and Gerard Hewitt. There was always problems with different situations, maybe off the pitch and maybe at times maybe Robbie trained a little bit. So, you know, but Robbie had been so successful as a player and that, that was the problem when you come in as a manager, when you've got a player who's scored 30 goals every season, they maybe don't feel like they need to change. And actually, it's interesting speaking to Robbie now. He actually says, no, Gerard was right. I wish I had maybe listened to him, you know, a, a little bit more. But with myself being young, Danny Murphy, Michael Owen, Stephen Gerrard, it was a lot more easier to influence us and we went with it. It's interesting though, Jamie, because Graham Souness was quite often credited with trying to bring sports science into the modern game based on his time in Italy. But I don't think the British culture was ready for it back then. That was the early 1990s. So even in the space of a five-year transition, it seemed that the next generation were willing to listen to those new ideas. Yes, you're right. I think Graham came in and he knew the way, of the, or the old Liverpool way of uh, having steak for a pre-match meal, you know, having a few drinks after the game, maybe even through the week. He went to Italy and, and had his, you know, his, his eyes were wide open with how they, you know, conducted themselves off the pitch, how they looked after the bodies, and he wanted to bring that in. And the problem was Liverpool was so successful, and Graham Souness, a man who was part of that success, wants to change things. Now, I think what what helped Gerard Hewitt was we weren't successful, we weren't doing well, so you want to change. That was the problem Graham Souness had. He was trying to change something that was very successful, and. I think that's where he maybe lost some of the players who he'd had as teammates thinking, you know, you were part of this. You know the way what we do. Why try and fix something that isn't broken, basically? But I think that was what made it easier, certainly for Gerard Huber. And the fact, obviously, you know, times are changing, the game's moving on. We're talking, you know, uh, probably seven or eight years later. And also Arsene Wenger's coming to the Premier League. Did you notice a big difference in yourself? when you started to implement those things as a player on and off the pitch? Yeah, listen, I, I wouldn't, I mean, a lot of people say that I can feel a difference. I wouldn't say I felt a massive difference. I just think, you know, if you're not drinking as much, you don't have that. Sometimes you come in the next day and you're a bit hungover and you feel a bit rough in training. Uh, you don't have those days. So maybe you can feel uh, a lot sharper, a lot fitter, fresher in those games. But certainly when we got to 2001, when we, we won three trophies in the one season, I mean, there was no time to train. It was just game after game. We played 63 games that season. So that's where it was imperative and vital that we all looked after ourselves because we wouldn't have been able to achieve what we did in that season if we hadn't. And that was, a, I think, a culmination really of Gerard Hulier's influence for the first two years. And then that third year, we really just, you know, we really grew and, and brought the success back to the club. What's the weirdest thing that you've been asked to do maybe over your career in terms of because I feel like James you can comment more on this but I feel like with <laughs> I'm trying to think how to phrase this in a good way there's just fads a lot of the time things come in and everybody does it and then it goes out again what's the strangest thing maybe you've done in terms of 
you should have this before a game or at half time and it'll make you this. Yeah, I mean, there's so many. I think you're right because before you know it, there's there's something new. And we used to always laugh about it. Every every season you come back for pre-season training, there's always about five new things, whether that was what time training started, what drink we had beforehand, what we had afterwards, what the, you know, there was all, you know what it's like, the first, first day back, there's always new rules and new different things. And I'm thinking, well, why weren't we doing that last season? What happened to that that <laughs> drink we had after the game where everyone was telling us this was the best thing out there? And now this season we've got something completely new. And I think a lot of the time with sports science, I was big for it. Me, I really, I really got involved. And I, I used to love ice baths. I, I felt great after ice baths. I didn't feel the benefits. We used to do it maybe a couple of times a season, like ice chambers. I used to come out of it and just I was just cold. I didn't know, you know, how much <laughs> what it had done. But I used to get ice baths a lot after games. I, I always felt the difference in my legs. So I'd say that was a big thing. And that's something I miss now. So I still train quite a lot, but you don't have the facilities in a local gym that you have, obviously, at LFC. And that's if there's one thing I could have, it will just, you know, when you've had a tough session, just getting into an ice bath for four or five minutes. I felt like You could still get into a cold bath. Of, yeah, I was going to say, if you're not heard of any ice from your freezer and get it in bath. <laughs> it's just you've got to come home. You've oh. got to it just, you know what? <laughs> We're pampered, aren't we, as footballers? It's just there it's just on there, tap. ready for you. It's too much hard work. Um, James, you were laughing when I, I was trying to word it in a, in a polite way about sports science. Jamie, when, when you look back, when do you think were you, you were at your peak? I, I would say between 2005 to 2009 under Rafa Benitez, when we got to, we won the Champions League, we got to another final, we got to another semi-final and we got to a quarter-final. That's what we did in that four-year period. So, we didn't win the Premier League, we all know that, but at that stage, we were in the best four or five teams in Europe, really, and we fancied our chances to win that competition every season. So that was when I was at my best. I was competing with the best you know, attacking players in Europe. My performances were alongside some of the best uh, defenders in Europe at that time. So it was, a, yeah, it was a great time to be involved. Did not win in the Premier League or does not win in the Premier League bother you? It, I wouldn't say it bothers me now. Uh, we, we, were de- well, we were desperate to do it when we were playing. We wanted to win it yeah. uh, when we were playing. And of course, at the end of your career, you look back on what you've achieved. And it, I think it's the same for any player. I think if you've got my mentality, even if I'd have won the Premier League, I'd have said, well, I never won the World Cup. There's always something someone hasn't done. It's very rare in football. I mean, you have the absolute legends, you know, who win numerous Champions Leagues, win the World Cup. You know, you've got that, you know, the Spanish contingent of the last few years. You've had the French team of you know Thierry Henry and Zidane and that you know they've they've ticked every box but even if you ask them there's always something that just sticks there you think oh I'd love to have done that and it wasn't for a one to try but at that time when we were at our best Man United had their best ever team Chelsea had their best ever team and Arsenal had their best ever team all with the greatest managers they've ever had Wenger, Mourinho, Ferguson so that time was I, I think the strongest there's possibly ever been in English football, where it was like for three or four years that there was three out of four teams were in the Champions League semi-finals. So we played Chelsea uh, two or three times. Uh, Manchester United were always there or thereabouts. And it was Barcelona and AC Milan. So that was the competition at the time. So it it wasn't easy. It was really difficult. Yeah, it's a really good point, actually. Just thinking about it, because the Premier League's opened up so much more now than it had at that time where it was so dominant by those top four teams. So we wanted to talk a bit about pre-season because this is, well, pretty much pre-season time um, for players. What was it like for you 
Do you remember going back? Were you somebody that did nothing in pre-season? What was it like on that first day back? I'd, I'd always do a few bits before I went back. I, I don't, I'm not sure it made that much difference. I think it was more just psychological for yourself and knowing that you'd done a few runs and a few bits before you went back. But I used to enjoy pre-season and a lot of, you hear a lot of scare stories and players not enjoying it and, and being sick after the runs. I used to love that fact of getting fit. You know, you had that real month of, you know, twice a day, you're eating the right food. So you're going back to training twice a day that you haven't been doing for the last same month. The food you're taking, you're going away to a pre-season uh, tour. We normally went to Switzerland and I used to really enjoy it. I must say that, uh, really. So, you know, going away, getting away from things, you know, getting really looked after, getting back on your massages and getting looked after and getting ready for the season. So I wasn't someone who feared pre-season. I actually quite enjoyed the, the fact that I was getting fit and ready for a new season. Yeah, I don't ever remember Jamie coming back, Charlie, in, in that part of a shape, to be honest. There was certainly a lot of work. <laughs> there was a lot of other <laughs> players we had to worry about. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Jamie, I don't think you ever you ever struck me as like somebody that because I think sometimes you can see a noticeable difference in some players and not so in others. What was it like in terms of dealing with new players? Because I think that's always an interesting point. So straight away, you've got new players in that you've got to bond with and fit in that culture, which we were talking about, and also that style of play or way of playing. Yeah, I mean that that was the norm every season. There'd normally be five or six players would come into the club, and you know. Normally, we'd, we'd give them a couple of weeks, see what they were like in training, make our judgments very early. We were maybe a little bit too harsh on some players, but it was uh, that's what it was. It was really high standards at Liverpool. As I said, we were one of the best teams in Europe. So, you know, someone coming in to improve on that had to be a top player. And to be honest, I mean, pretty quickly, you could work it out. You know, I, I always hear, you know, that it takes so long for players to settle. And, and I get that, but I don't think it should take a season. And every player who was successful at Liverpool as a foreign player coming in did it almost right away. So I think of Sammy Hippier, Xavi Alonso, Luis Suarez, uh, De Kite, John Arnarisa, Pepe Reina. You know, there's a list of names who were really, really top players for Liverpool. And they hit the ground running, really. And you knew straight away you had a decent player. There was very rarely anyone came in and was really poor for, you know, half a season, three quarters of a season. And then they were a different player the following season. They never really happened too much that way. But, of course, they we'd have to get used to them. They'd have to get used to to us as well, uh, you know, and the, and the Liverpool way of, of doing things. Yeah, I, I always think, though, Jamie, a lot of that come back to mentality because Liverpool signed so many, let's say, technically good players over the years. But as soon as the, the shirt came on or they couldn't pass the... Cara and Stevie test, they just crumbled, didn't they? They just couldn't deal with being at Liverpool. And it comes back to you, what you said at the beginning is, can you handle playing in the city of Liverpool and being under that pressure consistently? So what was the Cara and Stevie test then, eh? I'm waiting to hear were this. You, were you nice? Were you both <laughs> nice? Or was it like, oh my God, did people come in? And because you were such big names at the time, like, did people fear you? Well, I, I remember listening to, I think Peter Crouch has spoken about this publicly as well in, the, in training. The, the likes of Stevie and Cara would fizz balls into them to see what their touch was like. And he was often trying to impress them too, rather than Benitez. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I think I think a lot of players just couldn't really handle that intensity of training and, and the intensity of being in the city at the time. Yeah, I agree with that. Yeah. We were always told at Liverpool pace on the pass. We used to fizz passes into people. That was the way we... Uh, we wanted to play at Liverpool. So, yeah, there, there was a lot of that uh, going on. And yet, you're right. I mean, we, we were very mentally strong, me and Stevie. 
I think that's our, your upbringing. I think Liverpool people are mentally strong in general, if I'm being totally honest. So we were very intense every day in training. I think players, you know, you mentioned Crouch. I think a lot of the English players found that difficult. I think of like Peter Crouch, Bellamy, not so much Bellamy, but Robbie Keane came in, Jermaine Pennant. And the way Rafa was and the way we trained was very serious. Whereas I think they'd come from clubs where training was to enjoy yourself. We were actually training to win and to improve as players where they wanted to you know, have five aside, shooting practice, laughing, joking, and we'll have a go over weekend in the game. And I think it was a bit of a culture shock when they come to Liverpool about how we went about things. And a lot of the time they were left sort of wanting really. It's interesting about the disparity between different clubs then. I think that's interesting about the difference between going from one club to another club. Because I think we, I don't know, I would presume that that seriousness is across the board. I, I just think it's the case of when you're at the real big clubs, you have to win. It's non-negotiable, you know, and if you don't win for two games in a row, there's serious questions getting asked and it's, it's in the on the back pages of the press. Whereas if you come from, you know, mid-table Premier League clubs, you're not going to get that scrutiny. And you're coming from clubs where if they once every three games, that's enough. That keeps them in the Premier League. That makes them mid-table. So there isn't that sort of desire to make sure that, that you win and you don't lose and how important it is. And that seriousness of playing for a big club, I think, certainly with the intensity of a, of a club and a city like Liverpool, is sometimes hard to to understand for some people. Yeah, I think there's a misconception that a Premier League club is a Premier League club, but it, it's not at all. I spend a lot of time going out to different Premier League clubs, speaking to all of the sports science staff, and you can almost gauge the intensity and, and the culture within 10 minutes of being there. Um, and again, full credit to Stevie, what he's done at Rangers. He's he's almost brought that Premier League mentality back to Rangers. And you can see it now when I've been up there watching those guys train in the intensity. It very much reminds me of back in the old days at Melwood. So talking of pre-season... What was it like going on tour? Have you got any good pre-season tour stories that you're allowed to tell us? Oh, I, I, I bet you've had this answer on everyone. What goes on tour stays yeah. on tour, that type of thing. Uh, but no, there'd always be, you'd, you'd normally at the end of a 10-day, two-week period, there'd be, you know, a bit of a meal and a few drinks, to be honest. It was a lot more messy when I first got into, uh, you know, the team and I was, I was 18, 19, going to Norway with a Razor Ruddock and the boys, because you can imagine. <laughs> yep. The old, the older we got, and we were all getting a lot more sensible than the older we got as well. We were seen as the senior statesman of the club, you know, captain and vice-captain, myself and Stevie. So almost trying to set an example as, as good as we possibly could. But that night out as well would almost be as well to integrate new players and be away from the staff. And, and you know what it's like? You go out, you have a few drinks, people loosen up a little bit more, you have a chat, you have a laugh, you see what type of people they are a little bit. And and some people just completely, uh, it's not their scene. So I think of Fernando Torres, he he just didn't like being in those situations or being out with the lads or having a few drinks. He'd, you know, he'd almost show his face and he'd be gone. So if we had these two or three times a season with the club and we go to maybe the city centre or we go for a meal somewhere to, you know, just get together, a lot of players would go quite early and very early. And, you know, that was just because they didn't like that sort of environment, really. Fernando might have had his own little club he was going to, Jamie, we don't know. <laughs> 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 I wish he'd have took me. <laughs> I remember a long, long time ago, I, I went on a couple of pre-seasons with um, Real Madrid and it just reminded me of Raul. He used to do the same. He'd 
say hi to everyone and lovely, lovely man and then go and sit and read a book in the corner. And it just always <laughs> like made me, it was just so interesting to watch. It didn't do him watch. any harm. No, it didn't do him any harm. And he's just sat quietly in the corner while everybody else is going out, just reading his books. It's really interesting, like the difference in mentalities. So what, what do you think um, is the most important thing over that period coming into the season? I think, I mean, physically wise, I think making sure you're ready for the, you know, the, the Premier League. But don't forget, you've got new players coming in, even players who win in the team at the end of the season previously. Everyone almost starts with a clean slate and everyone thinks they're going to be in that team. Everyone's aim throughout pre-season is to be in that eleven on the first game of the Premier League. So it's almost like a rat race, really, to try and make sure you're in that and that competitive edge. And everyone feels like they, you know, they've got a chance you know, because there's a lot of baggage, I think, at times carried throughout the season, whether it's players injured, off form, new players have come in and done well, and things are changing all the time. And at times, people can feel a bit left out of it and feel like they can never get back in. So when everyone comes back, I think everyone always has that mentality, right? You know, we're all starting from zero on day one, and I've got a month to get into that first team. So it's almost like a, a bit of a fight, really, that you don't normally have at any other time in a season. Because there's games every three or four days that, that, you know, the game can change. Even if you're not playing, you could be playing again three or four days later. But this is almost a, a four or five week build up to, the, to this first game. It always, you know, a lot's riding on that sort of team, the manager first picks. And he's always stresses so much before he picks that first team that it's a squad game. You'll all get your chance. The team that starts today will not be the team that finishes the season. I think every squad gets that spiel from a manager on, on day one. Of a, of a Premier League season. Southgate's problem right now. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> uh, James, what's the most important thing from a sports science point of view? And also, how important is it to have that time off as well? I think that's important. Well, if there's one area of sports science in football that has evolved, it's probably the approach to pre-season. It's become a lot more scientific, um, a lot more planned. Every player will have all of their minutes carefully scheduled so that they're all working to get to a certain level. Whereas I think in the olden days, it was pretty much a one-size-fits-all. Everyone did the same runs. Everyone worked on the same things. The game has moved on quite a lot now. And again, to take it back to basics, there, there is a misconception, again, that to get fit, you have to run in straight lines for a long period of time. But of course, they're footballers, and you can get fit with a ball at your feet. So it's very rare that I think you'd see a Premier League team now doing the old shuttle runs of, of years gone by. Everything's done with the ball. The ball's come out in day one. And I think actually for any of the, the coaches working in the grassroots that are listening to this podcast, that's probably the biggest bit of advice that we could give them is get the balls out on day one and train to be a footballer rather than to be a runner. I'm sure, Jamie, you, you always like seeing the ball on day one rather than going for the, those big, long, hard runs on day one. Yeah, I used to get a lot of that. I mean, I'm lucky. I've been at the one club at Liverpool, and and even when I first started a long time ago, Liverpool would would do running in the morning, and in the afternoon we'd come back and play five sides, and that'd be on day one. So we used to have the balls, but I think what James is talking about is actually getting your fitness work through the balls, whereas we do our fitness work without the balls, and then you'd you'd have a you know a little five side game and get a touch of the ball. But I think what James is talking about now is actually getting that you know uh, fitness program inside you with the ball. So that's obviously a lot more advanced now. That that came into the game and I was, you know, at Rafa, Brendan Rodgers did the same as well. So that, that is there quite a lot. But I, I think James is right. Everyone used to do the same runs. There was no heart monitors. There was no, you know, it was basically, we're going to run around this pitch so many times. 
basically don't be last. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and r- run until you're sick, and then you know you've had a good session. <laughs> I, I've got to say, though, I think Brendan is the best in the game at integrating sports science into coaching. I always thought his sessions were, were top class because he, well, he's a brilliant coach himself anyway, isn't he? And, and he worked very closely with the sports science staff in, in delivering what the session was all about. Yeah, he was. He is a great coach. He really is, Brendan. I think he took a lot of the ideas where that come from. I think you call that James periodization, isn't it? That that type of philosophy of, of train. I think a lot of that came from Mourinho. And I think he's obviously added his own bits and evolved it over different times as well. But I think that was a great influence on Brendan Rodgers, you know, working at Chelsea at that time. And not just Mourinho, there was obviously different managers coming into that club constantly, you know, with different ideas from abroad. So I think he's picked up a lot from there and used that really well. Yeah, but Brendan definitely bought into the sports science at Liverpool because he left about two or three stone lighter than when he arrived. <laughs> <laughs> I think I that's just the stress you. of a manager, though. I think that's yeah. the stress of a manager. I think you see that on every manager, they look like half the size of when they go into the job. <laughs> that's oh, okay is that sports science not stress um jamie how important is it for you to keep up your fitness now you know not just for your physicality but for your mental health too no it's really important for me it's i mean that was something i was always told when i stopped playing make sure you fill your day i would say virtually every day since i stopped certainly from monday to friday i get up and go to the gym it's almost a, a class that i was going to train and like i did with liverpool because the work I do for Sky is the weekend. So, you know, Monday to Friday, I couldn't just get up, have breakfast and watch daytime TV. So I get out the house very early, you know, about nine o'clock and go to the gym and there for a couple of hours, go out, have a bit of lunch and then, you know, bits and bobs you have to do in, in the afternoon or things you have to, uh, people you have to see and meet, but, or podcast or Zoom yeah, like that this. you have to do. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so if, if anyone ever asks me to do anything, it's always in the afternoon. It's never of a morning because, uh, I'm always at the gym. So, yeah, it makes me feel good mentally as well. I want to obviously keep a nick because I've been a footballer. It was something that scared me a little bit that when I used to see ex-footballers years later, you know, 10 years after they retired and they put a lot of weight on, I think, oh, no, that won't be me. So I probably train a little bit harder now, James, actually. <laughs> you do a lot more boxing now, don't you, in, in the yes. Thunder gym? That's for Gary Neville. Yeah, when, when is that fight going to happen, actually? <laughs> Oh, it'll happen one day. If he says one more word, he's getting it. <laughs> I'd like to see that. Right, we've not got too much time left, so I'm going to do some quick fire questions for you. So, best player uh, you ever played with? Stevie Gerrard. I knew you were going to say that. <laughs> <laughs> best player played against? Thierry Henry. Best manager? Rafa Benitez. Career highlight? Uh, Istanbul. Yeah, of course. To use a phrase from your own podcast, your greatest game. Uh, I mean, the obvious one would be Istanbul. But what I would say is, I'd say my debut then, if we've taken that out of it. Because I think my debut, I was 18. I got booked after 20 seconds in the game. I ended up scoring at the cop end at 18. And uh, Liverpool were top of the league that night for an 18-year-old kid. So to score on my debut. And I always feel if your debut doesn't go well, what way do you go from there? Do I have the career I have? Do I play 700 games to Liverpool? Does Istanbul happen without making that impression at 18? So I'll, I'll go for me and my debut in uh, 1997. And that's it. That's the the last of the list. <laughs> um, I wanted to also mention your charity. And can you tell us a bit more about that and the work that 
you do with your charity because I think it leads nicely because you were saying about your punditry work and we all watch you on Sky. But for footballers to have, or sports people just in general, to have something to, to, to go to, to give back, to, you know, to feel, because I think that self-worth, not going too deep, hinges so much on the game and, and that's your life. And then to just suddenly stop, we see it a lot in sports people. So tell us about your charity. Well, it, it's the 23 Foundation, and that was basically on the back of my shirt number I wore for the whole my whole career at Liverpool. I didn't want to call it the Jamie Carragher Foundation. I thought that'd be a bit too egotistical. So we called it the 23 Foundation. And the money we raised from my testimonial game, along with you know a few other dinners and, and golf days, raised a million pounds. So we decided to put it into a foundation. So we give the interest away every year. That normally gets us 70,000. So we give that away, and we raise a lot more through me signing shirts and doing appearances. So we possibly give probably 120 to 150k out each year. And we've done that for the last 10 years. So we had a big dinner to celebrate the the last uh, the 10 year anniversary of the of the foundation. And we raised 250,000 pounds with a dinner, and that all went back into grassroots football in the area. So that was coaching for kids it was referees courses it was it was coaching courses for amateur football managers and uh, we we installed i think we're probably close to installing 25 defibrillators over the last probably 12 18 months and that's come to fruition now or certainly come into the limelight a lot more with what happened with christian erickson so we're involved with the the oliver king foundation who were Basically, that Oliver King is a young young boy who who lost his life because of a lack of a defibrillator. So his dad is his dad Marks created the the Oliver King Foundation. So we we give our funds to them, source them from there, and, and they're trying to get them around the country. So we're actually getting together now and trying to you know go to Parliament actually and government and and try and implement this where it's uh, every school has to have a defibrillator. It's just you know to hopefully that'll get passed by the government. So we're getting together on that. So there's lots of initiatives that we're involved in. And, but, you know, the money, more often than not, or 99% of the time, will stay in the, in the area of Merseyside. How important do you think football is to young people around there, making sure they have that influence? You said it's everything everybody ever talks about. It's life. I mean, for, I mean very rarely will you, will you have a, a young kid or a young girl in this city who doesn't have an allegiance to Everton or Liverpool. It's very rarely anyone will tell you, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm not interested in the football. I, I don't really support anyone. Everyone's, you, you've got to, you've got to, you know, you've got to put a line in the sand. What are you, red or blue? And that's throughout, you know, this city. If if your daughter's going out, you know, gets a new boyfriend, <laughs> it's the first question is, is he red or blue? You know, that's that's what everyone wants to know. So it's, uh, that's the way it is. So it, it's vitally important. It is a massive part of our lives in this city and it'll never change. And indeed, sport in general in Liverpool and, and across Merseyside, sports such a big component of of everyone's life, not just children's lives. Mm. So, final question then: um, You've given so much advice during it that people can take away. But what is the one bit of advice you would give, just in general, in terms of you know fitness, your health, anything you want to pick that you would give to people? I mean, the, the big thing for me is that. Uh... I think the sad thing with a lot of sportsmen or even football is that they don't fulfil their potential, and that could be through at times maybe a lack of uh, a lack of a work ethic in certain situations. And that that for me, I think I fulfilled man. So that makes me pleased. I can never say, well, you know, I didn't do enough because I think for my ability, I did more than maybe people were expecting, and maybe more than 
other players who had more ability than me. And I, I just think it's a sad thing when you see someone not fulfil that potential or a player who should have actually made it as a footballer and doesn't make it for you know whatever reason that may be. So, you know, and I'm just sticking this to to football, really. It's, it's a short career, you know, possibly, a, you know, professional career is, is 15 years at the most and you've just got to maximise it. You really have. And, and that comes from listening to your coaches, sports science, looking after your body and, and just give it absolutely everything because it's it's a long life after that. Yeah. It reminds me, of, I, I love quotes in that. And of course, there's loads of quotes out there, but one of the, my favourites by Alex Ferguson, where he said that the biggest talent of all is the ability to work hard. And and that's a given, isn't it? I mean, that should be a given for anyone in life. But, yeah. But unfortunately, it's not. Yeah, that's the problem. If, if we could, if we could raise children to have that in their mentality, the world would be a better place, wouldn't it? Do you think self belief plays a part of that as well, Jamie? When you first went into your career, like having that belief, and then the more you work hard, the more you see your results, the more you then believe in yourself. Yeah, I think so. I do. I think. I think I always had confidence in myself, maybe than more than other people did, maybe at different times through my career. I'm not sure, but I don't know if that's a Liverpool trait. I think in Liverpool, we're not cocky, but we fancy ourselves a little bit. You know, it's, you know we're, we're quite on the front foot. We're, we're not shy. You know, we, we'll have a go at something. And, you, you know, you put yourself on the line. I think even when I was 18, I was telling Roy Evans I should be in the team, not because I was arrogant or big-headed, no, it was just like, no, I think I should be, yeah. I'm working hard, I'm playing well. Why aren't I? You know, I want my chance. I'm not, I'm not scared of it. I'm not scared of playing for Liverpool at Anfield. It was, I don't know if that was maybe just me, a trait of Liverpool people in general, really, but maybe that self-belief does come from, you know, the work that you put in and you see the results. Yeah, I, I mean, I couldn't agree more, Jamie. And I think, in fact, if, if there's one thing that academies could try and instill into players coming through, regardless of technical ability or eating correctly or whatever, it's actually like leadership skills and believing in yourself. I coach kids myself and quite I say the same thing every session. Believe in yourself and, and talk and stand up and, and have a presence. I think children now don't talk enough in the game. Yeah, no, you're spot on. I say that to my son all the time. I watch kids play now and some of our kids are good. They're in and out of academies, but they don't talk. It's It's silent. And I'm trying to encourage them to stick their chest out, believe in themselves and go and leave your mark in the game. If for anyone listening now who has children coming through, I think that's the biggest gift that you can try and instill in them. James, what a pleasure it was to interview Jamie. I thought it was absolutely excellent. Um, I'd love to pick out a few points with you. I, f- I always find it really interesting when um, you speak to footballers and Jamie made the point that football is always about the next game. And I think quite often us as humans look so much further than that. How hard, how important is that firstly? I don't think there's any sport in the world like football that is so focused on getting three points at the weekend and winning at the weekend. It reminds me of a a lot of conversations I used to have with Sir Dave Brailsford at Team Sky. And Dave always talked about the difference between long-term strategy and the here and now. And he would often say, listen, the strategy is the here and now, because if we don't win this weekend, we don't have any long-term strategy. And so, of course, in in all business and sport, we tend to have people focusing on the short, medium and long-term strategy of the organisation. But as I mentioned, football is probably historically all about the weekend. And and Jamie brought that to life there with his, his comments. It is interesting, though, watching the England team 
and seeing how successful the England team are now, that is the fruition of a long-term strategy that's 10 years in the making. So I think football as a whole, as a sport in general, could benefit from a lot more of a strategic focus as well as keeping one eye on that, of course, getting those three points at the weekend. But it's funny how you analyse it, just listening to you then, because it is a long-term strategy that looking at the England team, but then within that long-term strategy, they're using short-term goals because every single game, they kind of celebrate for 10 seconds and then it's like, that's it. They, they just go straight focused to the next game. So it's almost like, I think just in the psychology work I've done as well, it's like having that long-term goal, but being able to work on it short-term because I think that's where a lot of people maybe struggle because they focus so much on long-term. Yeah, I think it's a it's a massive skill set, Charlie, is having that ability to think short, medium and long-term. And, and I'm not sure there's many people in life that can't jump between time zones. And those people who can tend to be those real successful, smart thinkers. I was just thinking there about the England team again. I remember, I think it was in the quarterfinal or the semi-final that Gareth Southgate said that if the team had have got beat, then he probably would have been under a lot of scrutiny because of the team selections that he was he was changing again. He's changed the team every game and everyone is saying that's the wrong team or that's the right team. When it comes off, it's great. And again, that just shows you how, how football is so dynamic in that one result can completely change the perception of, of the whole organisation. It, it's There's no other sport in the world like it. It can often be the difference between a football manager staying at the club and being sacked. So let's move to culture then, um, which kind of goes a little bit what we were just saying in terms of football management. But the culture we've seen, I mean, as fans um, and you as, you know, sports scientists, that culture's changed so much around football and training I mean you know when I was being brought back in the day you'd see footballers out all the time and Jamie was saying that he trains the way he plays is that a good or a bad thing? Well I think what he really meant there Charlie was that he trained the way he plays in terms of his mentality and that he brings the best version of himself to every single training session so I wouldn't want the listeners to come away thinking that Every training session is the same intensity, the same physical loading patterns. It's absolutely the same as a game day because, of course, you couldn't do that. And Jamie touched upon it, actually, when he said, I think that's called periodization, James, isn't it? And he's right. Which we have covered as well in this podcast, haven't we? Exactly. Do you want to remind us a little bit about that? Yeah, well, what happens in a football scenario is obviously everything is targeted around the match day and then we work backwards. So we'll have match day minus one, minus two, three, four, five and so on. And so the goals of every one of those days looks entirely different. The training is different. The intensity is different. Sometimes the nutritional strategies are different. And we touched upon it how Brendan Rodgers actually really embraced that tactical periodization with the world of sports science to make sure that the training session was aligned to what you were trying to achieve from a sports science perspective. What about when Jamie said that he started to change his game in, in terms of his nutrition and looking after himself better, he didn't feel it necessarily straight away. Is that something that's normal? Because I think, again, as, as humans, we expect <laughs> to feel something, a result straight away. But is it is it almost looking, you know, going back to the strategies, looking long-term and that longevity in your career? And, and maybe just in general in your for everyday exercises as well. Definitely, definitely. And we've touched upon this, Charlie, in numerous episodes now in that 
sports science isn't isn't so much about if you start something today, you're going to feel a difference tomorrow. It's very much a, a lifestyle change, a, a, a change to how you professionalism you are and how you approach your sport. You pick those benefits up later on in your career. So Jamie had a long career. He had a, a long career in the sport at the highest level. Um, and he probably didn't feel like an immediate change. But one of the reasons why he had that long career was because he embraced that principles of sports science. And we see it now in so many sports, so many athletes are progressing longer into their career. And it's because they're doing all of the little things well, consistently, day by day, week after week, month after month. And then you get the returns later on in your career. We are actually seeing that so much more, aren't we, in terms of like athletes being a lot older. Is that to do with sports science then? Is that to do with athletes looking after themselves better? 100%, without doubt. The training methods are more sophisticated. The nutritional strategies are more sophisticated. We're learning more about sleep. We're learning more about recovery. Jamie mentioned second day recovery, which goes back to the DOMS episode that we had. That's typically when you have your peak muscle soreness two days after exercise. So our training strategies, our recovery strategies, we're learning things all the time. And it's all adding up to athletes being able to sustain their peak performance longer into their career. You know, after we did that Dom's episode, I actually went and did the hardest training session just just to emulate what we were talking about. <laughs> I think I messaged you and I was like, oh my God. <laughs> um, it's really interesting because I try and like experiment with some of the things that we talk about. We have focused on pre-season. Jamie kind of mentioned that he really enjoyed it and that feeling of getting fit. Um, I want to break this down a little bit with you. So that pre-season and off-season, does this apply to other sports and how important is it to make sure that we do have that break and not do too much? But should we maintain some fitness level during it? Well, let, let's start with the off season, Charlie, because traditionally lots of athletes would um, have a complete break and they wouldn't do any exercise. They would change their nutrition. They'd come back overweight and their fitness should be almost back to baseline, especially if it's, if it's boxers that we've covered back in episode two or three, I think. What we're now seeing is that many athletes in the off-season would have their off-season programs. Now, of course, they're not as intense as their in-season programs. It might be three or four sessions a week, but it helps to maintain what you've already built. And that's usually a mix of both endurance and a mix of strength. And so when you then come back to pre-season, you're starting off at a higher level. What that also means then is that because you're fitter to start with, you're less susceptible to injuries. And I think in the old days, lots of pre-season training was about flog yourself as hard as you can twice a day, seven days in a row. And of course, people used to break down. Now with the evolution of sports science and football across pre-season training, you see that every day is different. Every week is different. And you see the load is periodized up. It increases. Then you'll have an unloading week. And by the end of the six or seven weeks, every player has achieved the targets that they need to achieve. And the rates of injury are coming down year on year because it's all being planned and periodized much more strategically and professionally. And because normally, James, we have like a, another sports scientist with us that we pick that specializes in something and we always ask that question, what's the most important thing? I've got the opportunity to ask you, out of everything that we've discussed, what is your most important thing to take away from this for anybody in general? Well, I guess it's, it's quite timely, Charlie, because... This podcast was very much about the evolution of sports science, but we did touch upon pre-season. And so there's lots of 
aspiring footballers all around the country, but there'll also be other people engaging in types of exercise. And I would always go back to the fundamentals of planning for anyone engaging in a pre-season this year or anyone just going to the gym. We often see it. You ask them, what is your session about today? And they, they haven't decided yet. They decide when they're in the gym what they're going to do. Oh, I'll do I'll do this today. I'll do that today. And it, it comes back to planning. If there's no plan, then you can't periodize your loads. You can't change your nutrition. You can't give yourself targets. The most important part of anything that I, I believe in health and fitness is actually having a plan to work from. I think that's one of the most important things I've taken from you. And I mean, I often do have a plan, but sometimes I think in our busy lives, we just, you know, go out and exercise. And I think with that, it's made me think a lot about, um, I remember you saying just one final point that we often go and do the same things. And I think sometimes I can be quite habitual like that. I'll just go for a run and I'll do the same kind of run, the same kind of pace. So I started to shake that up is that really important planning to make sure that we're not doing the same training where our body just gets used to that definitely definitely and we go back to what adam pd said which was making sure that every session has a purpose and so when you're planning your training out whether you do that over a seven day period or a two week or three week period you should be able to say right this session is going to do these effects in my body for these reasons the next session is going to be doing that And by the end of these three or four weeks, this little block that I'm on, I will have moved on this parameter this much, this parameter that much. Then you go on to the next phase of your training. And I'm not sure many people engaged in exercise and training really consider that first step. Thanks, James. Really great to get your insight as always. And thank you to Jamie for joining us on this episode. And thank you for listening. You can learn more about our brands by visiting sciencesport.com and phd.com while we're waiting for the next episode. We look forward to speaking to you soon. See you next time.